Good afternoon. This is Michael Muse of Going Global International Interviews. Today we are speaking with David Laverty, who is uh, the lead lawyer or attorney with International Counsel, a law firm specializing specifically in international transactions, business, and so on. So, welcome, David. Thanks so much, Michael. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, now, first of all, let's start off with just a few general questions about the law internationally. First of all, how does the law differ from country to country? Well, that's a good way to start. And um, I think it leads me to think that there are many companies um, that assume that there is perhaps more of a radical difference from country to country than there really is. Um, Lawyers uh, who do international work tend to think of countries as either common law countries or civil law countries. Common law is more of a UK-style system of um, a lot of court-generated laws, fewer statutes, and the U.S. has inherited that. And then we have places like Singapore, Malaysia, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, common law countries, versus the civil law countries, which is more of a uh, continental European tradition where a lot more is in a code. And there's sort of a basic distinction between uh, civil law and common law. But you know, for the average business person doing something in other countries, um, the issues tend to fall into uh, some pretty consistent patterns. How do you get into the country? What are the forms of entity you could, you could open up? How do you conduct yourself to say if you're going to do a joint venture and um, what are the options for a joint venture or an acquisition? There's plenty of nuances country to country, but I, I tend to think of it as um, countries have a lot more in common, and there's a sort of a, a skill set uh, and uh, kinds of issues people need to think about when they're getting out of their domestic frame of mind and into a cross-border frame of mind. I mean, that's that sort of that framework and that skill set is what can apply country to country quite a lot. So in other words, regardless of whether a country uses case law or code law, if I'm an American business person looking to do business in other places, in some ways it's immaterial, whether they're case code or, or common or civil or whatever. Yeah, in, in some ways. And say um, a China would be an example of uh, a civil law, they generally civil law um, oriented country, Japan, Korea, India would be another one of those common law countries. Now, if you're going to do a, a, an acquisition of a company in either China or India, there will be a lot of commonalities over, say, whether there's some restrictions that you have to encounter to begin with, there's some limitation on the equity you can have in a company, and whether you can even uh, do an acquisition. Um, or uh, then uh, the form of the agreement should be a stock purchase or asset purchase agreement. Uh, what are the tax consequences? The tax consequences will differ. There'll be different employee-related issues, different uh, uh, red flags that you should watch out for. But essentially, a same kind of animal in either place. Okay. I don't want to yeah. exaggerate that too much. But. Well, yeah, and, um, and maybe we should clarify the difference between the two general systems No, that's, that's, uh, there's, there's a lot to that, and then in the court system in uh, 
of civil law jurisdiction, mm -hmm. the decisions that would be made would be um, without precedential value. The other court isn't obligated to follow that. Mm -hmm. And then there's many implications if you're in the, in the courts and you're in litigation with somebody, um, need to enforce rights in, in different systems. Mm -hmm. But from a business person's perspective and doing business with another country, it's, it's about the contract, it's about the kind of entities that are being set up. Um, and I think that, that kind of framework um, of, uh, of, of law is, has a lot more in common. Okay. All right. Well, let's say you have an American firm either wanting to sell outside of the United States or maybe source, say, a software developer looking to outsource software development to another country. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest problem American companies run into in those situations? Well, um, I think uh, the problems can either be relying too much on what they're used to in, in the United States and the kind of agreements and the, the kind of um, uh, uh, process that we go through that the uh, kind of the smoothness of the process, um, uh, the hurdles you have to go through. Well, it's either... So, so essentially, assuming things in the rest of the world are pretty much like you do in here in the States. It's either that extreme I sometimes run into, or the other, which is that it's going to be a totally different kind of animal, totally different system. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, that some businesses that are newer to the game will tend to throw off all that great common sense and uh, knowledge that they've, they've gathered and, and say, you know, I've just been to Shanghai and I've been told, you know, you just look that person in the eye and shake hands and uh, it's more on the basis of trust. I'm going to go that direction and forget about these contracts. They don't mean anything in, in China. And, and companies that have been at it much longer, I think, are able to strike a better balance to protect their own, in a sense, of other business and values yet um, adapted for other countries. Mm -hmm. But uh, the newcomers, I think, tend to be more one extreme or the other. Well, yeah, I mean, I see that in business all the time. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, holding on and not really taking anything from where you're going or who you're doing business with, as opposed to going to the other extreme, totally going local and kind of abandoning all of your values, decision-making, so on. It's not like the same kind of thing that we go yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, then conversely, go in the other direction. I know you work with foreign companies looking to do business here in America as well. What obstacles do they run into? Um, you know, are they any different from American firms going in the other direction? Not really. Not really. I think, uh, I think for one, uh, I hear from many foreign companies coming to the U.S. are concerns about this litigation system and product liability and huge damages that can come up when they're doing business. So there's certainly certainly on the minds of, of lots of foreign companies coming here. Do you think those things put off many foreign companies from coming here? I think they do. I think they do. And uh, um, I think there are ways to control that risk. But uh, it, it is a higher level of risk than um, one was found in, in many other countries. Uh, I'll use India as an example. Um, there's some work with Indian companies coming to the U.S. and talking to Indian companies, making presentations, and there's a tendency, overwhelming tendency in India. If you're going to acquire a company, uh, you're going to do it with a stock purchase. Buy the stock of that company uh, because there's some very high tax 
stamp duties on the transfer of assets, and that would be crazy. It would be too expensive. Plus, if you buy the stock of a company, you're not necessarily going to inherit all these other things that you might in, in the United States or in many other countries. You know, there's liabilities out there, but it's not likely to be at the same level of risk. Um, so coming to the U.S. then, many Indian companies um, think, well, we're going to go with a stock purchase and kind of underestimate the risk that could be inherited with, uh, with the company lock, stock, and barrel and, and not realize that by buying assets in the U.S., there's not going to be that super high stamp duty to transfer assets. And so I think uh, get them accustomed to a slightly different uh, system here. And um, that educational process, I think, is something we find is true for foreign companies coming here with the uh, same way as U.S. companies going elsewhere. Interesting, uh, developed economies. I mean, are they different? Well, I think it's uh, there. There is absolutely, and I, I was just in fact putting together uh, a cheat sheet for U.S. companies doing business in other countries that that rank other countries by basically ease of doing business and also um, uh, corruption indices. There are various other factors that it can be factored in, and there's bits and pieces of information out there, but I was consolidating it and making it available to some uh, contacts. It sounds like the competitive index, which just came out, which I think the U.S. locked the top spot That's for right. the first time in three Switzerland. years. Right, right, and that's exactly a piece of it, although um, when it comes down to the ease of getting into those markets, say, as a foreign company, it would be a little different. Switzerland actually doesn't tend to be at the top in 10. Uh, but then you see countries like uh, New Zealand, or you see Hong Kong. Uh, Singapore is always toward the top. Uh, Hong Kong and Singapore certainly are for Asia. The um, UK is reasonably up there. The US is in the game. Um, but you know, that tends to be the case that the more developed or um, countries that are a little bit uh, further along the path with maybe higher GDPs per capita and longer histories of doing business internationally are going to be more user-friendly and um, look and feel in a similar way, at least legally, to uh, companies trying to get into those markets. The more emerging economies, it's more of a mixed bag. They tend to have more restrictions, more cumbersome procedures. Um, uh, the examples um, you know, certainly has been China, maybe Exhibit A, and, and India, Exhibit B. And China's gotten, gotten better. Many companies find that at least getting in and they're not faced with so many regulatory hoops as they used to be. India is relatively open, although some of the bureaucratic issues are, are there, and that should be resolved over time, and um, I think as places find that this, all this foreign investment it really can be a good thing for our economy, and, and there's no reason to muck it up with, <laughs> with too many details and too many hoops. Um, It'll sort of solve out in the market. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think there were some outmoded ideas out there for a long time. In other words, 
emerging economies would think if we take too much investment, we'll lose sovereignty control right. over our economy, our businesses, and so on. Right. And I think some of those stuff have probably fallen by the wayside. Yeah, as North Korea, it's quite born by the right way, sorry. But yeah, but no, I think um, in many Latin American countries, you should have the greatest concern over the foreign investment. In many countries, I think, have had a negative experience. China certainly had a negative experience with the early um, uh, UK, I mentioned names, but other countries uh, getting these concessions and, and basically taking advantage of, of local interests. Um, Countries tend to be protective of their natural resources, and that's still the case. They tend to be very protective of things that might impact their national security. It's not just the U.S. It's every country has some concerns over mining uranium or producing uh, weapons, and these uh, industries and sectors are very restricted to uh, foreigners. However, that may be more whoever's perspective. Um, but um, the reins tend to be loosened, and it's almost... In, in inevitable pattern in Asia, Japan probably led the charge after Singapore and Hong Kong, but then loosening up its restrictions and becoming a uh, less restrictive environment. Korea has come a huge way in the last 20 years. I mean, it's quite an open economy. Taiwan is, is quite open. Um, and you know, further down, not quite as long along the path, certainly would be a... Uh, uh, Cambodia or Laos, which is really not that open at, at this point. Okay. Vietnam's come a long way. Thailand, Malaysia is a fairly open economy. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Um, and then I guess one other difference. Um, how is this different about looking at legal issues if I'm a small company as opposed to a big company? Uh, well, um, you know, I preface that by saying that we wouldn't see that many small companies in the old days. Um, we're doing much more than exporting. And exporting is something that, uh, that uh, does cumbersome for any company. You can even sell your goods to somebody who would take uh, possession in your own country, in the U.S. Maybe responsible for getting it out into their own country. Um, but you know, many people are aware of this, but there's been an enormous uh, trend in the last 20, 30 years towards smaller and smaller companies going out aggressively into other markets, uh, not just through exporting, but through distributors, through licenses, through direct investment, opening up their own offices, um, uh, acquiring companies. It's, 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 it's much more, there's much more ability, whether it's communications, ability to travel, more experienced people from bigger companies coming down the food chain to smaller companies. There are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, but smaller companies really do lack uh, the resources to pull off as much as the bigger companies. The CEOs and CFOs can be um, very distracted by international initiatives. Um, they don't have a director of business development, and they don't have... Uh, a team of people who are really dedicated to some of the uh, uh, different geographic sectors. And on the legal side, they don't have, uh, often don't have lawyers at all inside the company, but if they do, it's going to be someone who's very much of a general, general counsel and maybe even a few others who, who may not have a lot of experience in other countries. So it, it's finding ways to plug in that experience without bankrupting themselves on cost. Because, uh, not to mention names, but you tip your favor, 
big accounting firm, and it's, it's going to be a challenge for a smaller company to take advantage of, of their capabilities. Um, and, and they can have great consulting capabilities. They can have great uh, tax-related capabilities that could be very beneficial for the smaller companies, but almost out of reach cost-wise. And I don't want to pick on my uh, friends in larger law firms, but certainly the large law firm model of the global firm with a footprint in many countries is not an inexpensive animal to keep fed. And, uh, uh, you know, our own model uh, is trying to do without a lot of that overhead and accomplish the same things that can be accomplished in a big firm. But it's, it's finding the resources and being able to afford those resources. Um, and, and, and finding who you can rely on and trust, which is a big advantage for the large institutions. Now, they've been around, they look like they're, they're serious, they've got uh, lots of floors in their building, and uh, is the issue just lack of overhead, or are there other issues working with bigger law firms as well? Well, um, you know, there are those who will, who will say that um, uh, they are less able inevitably to pay attention to the smaller clients and the smaller matters, and there's less of the service touch. And I'm sure there are many counterexamples. I've seen many you know, really wonderful ones who are very attentive to smaller matters and smaller clients who are in the large firms. Um, uh, but I, my view is, and probably not many would argue, that um, they're not really optimized for the smaller company and smaller companies' problem. They're optimized for bigger deals that are um, more labor-intensive and, um, you know, be requiring just a lot more um, of the resources they've amassed in, say, an integrated series of offices in several countries. Eagle, I think there is an argument for a law firm that has offices in, in many places if it's uh, an acquisition that might involve 10 different countries at the same time. But most day-to-day -day projects that even a large company would do uh, require one or two people on one side and one or two people in a, in a law firm for some backup support. And those are local law firms almost inevitably in, in the usual transactions that go on around the world. And there's, there's so many wonderful local firms in, within your favorite countries. Um, uh, if you know them and work with them and, and can identify who are the most serious, most people who are not. And I think smaller companies don't have an ability to judge that very well. And it, it tends to uh, exclude them towards their, their comfort level with people they've known uh, in the community and say the larger law firms makes me more familiar to them and uh, it might skew their decisions for that. Well, it's kind of, it's a matching process. Big companies matching up with big law firms. Well, uh, perhaps, perhaps. I think, uh, I think there's, there's less of that though. And as we're going through this recession, um, I think there's a lot more uh, willingness out there to match the right sort of capabilities uh, that we need. And I think larger companies are doing that more. They use their large law firm resources for major deals, uh, maybe their primary securities lawyers if, if they are a public company. And they are more willing to put in other expertise uh, into the mix, not just from other uh, regular law firms, uh, 
you know, ours is a, usually law firm is covered by malpractice insurance and it is, a, it is a law office, but there are other kinds of uh, resources such as uh, temporary lawyer services. Um, there are some that are very, very well marketed these days that are basically temporary lawyer services, matching individual lawyers with, with companies or even law firms. And then there's even a trend uh, in many of the world of uh, outsourcing work to India for one. And India has uh, lots and lots of well-trained lawyers. They're not really there to in the outsourced uh, situations to provide uh, uh, legal advice. They're there to provide backup support, which is essentially paralegal-type um, backup support. But there's, there's a lot more um, I mean, movement toward um, the right pricing, the right skills for the project, and it's not um, one firm for all, all purposes. Okay. Well, moving on to a couple more specific issues for technology firms. A lot of technology firms are really concerned about their intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And so if you are selling it elsewhere or outsourcing the development of your software, there are some places in the world where intellectual property is not protected so well. Mm-hmm. What, what can a, a tech firm do to protect themselves in those kind of places throughout the world. Yeah, it's, it is um, something we hear all the time and, and it's, it's a big concern. And um, I think for one, we see that many companies don't really um, protect themselves with, with the basics to start with, say if they have patents on uh, uh, technology. Excuse me, to make sure that the patents are registered in the country that they're in business. And intellectual property is largely a country by country protection. And while somebody might have a trademark registration in the U.S. or a patent protected here, that carries little weight in, in other places. And there are some circumstances where um, uh, there are protections available because just these kind of states. The widely known trademark of McDonald's, whether or not McDonald's has it registered, it's going to be tough in some places for uh, someone to swipe that. Make a challenge. A European um, patent court in Munich, mm-hmm. does that apply for all of Europe, or do you still need to get patents on a country by country basis? Well, there, um, there are um, these uh, basically treaties that will allow you to roll out an application into other countries if you do it within a certain amount of time. Um, so um, uh, what happens though, I think, is that some, some companies um, will miss the window because they're, when they're first applying for their protection, they're quite uh, young often and they're not necessarily anticipating going into other places. And that tends to come a little bit later, so they may not take advantage of the time deadlines to do that. Um, but I think also just by agreements that have protections in place where you're, say, outsourcing, you're mentioning outsourcing software, um, uh, whether it's uh, in, in India or the Philippines or wherever, um, there's a lot of precautions that need to be taken into account in um, uh, not just the agreement with the company that you're outsourcing to, but what about those employees of the company? Are they really bound by individual um, confidentiality agreements? And, and then another example would be um, there's different treatment of um, 
of the kind of input those employees might have and whether they are allowed, because they've contributed to the development of that, that um, uh, software, whether they have some rights of their own to, to seek that knowledge. And, you know, and there's often some language that can be added to say, well, you know, we're aware of your local law that might give you some extra rights, but you're explicitly waiving that. Um, and it's not going to help you if it's a third party that has just decided to steal your technology. And so that's not the answer for everything. Or the um, you know, folks who are taking uh, your, your, your label and slapping it on and selling, selling it in the back street markets or whatever. But, uh, but where you can protect yourself in a relationship to the contract should be done. And also, um, considerations say what happens in the dispute. Um, uh, should you be relying on local courts? Um, well, I think which is a very, very common mistake is to think that specifying U.S. courts is the best answer. We're familiar with our courts in Illinois and our Illinois law. Um, so why don't we just say that any disputes will be resolved here in Illinois, even though we're outsourcing uh, our software production in India? And it sounds good. But the problem is, what do you do, even if you get a judgment in Illinois, how do you enforce that against parties in India or wherever? Um, there are not uh, treaties that will allow you to automatically enforce a judgment, a court judgment in another country. It's, by and large, a reciprocity arrangement that depends on a court's um, application of these, these reciprocal sort of principles. With arbitration is something that people should consider. There are ways to, um, it's relying on a treaty, the New York Convention, which most countries we'd be doing business with have become members of the New York Convention, and an arbitral award is uh, enforceable with some exceptions. Um, if it's fraudulently obtained, and there's some other exceptions there. But I think that arbitration dispute resolution piece of the equation is often overlooked. So um, one funny thing, oh my God, if we have any problems, we're just going to sue them right here in Chicago. Yeah. And two arbitrations, does it matter where you name the court of arbitration? In other words, I heard places like Switzerland, Singapore, you know, places traditionally thought of as neutral, objective, and so on. Does that make any difference? Um, you know, the different bodies of rules uh, have relative advantages. Um, substantively, there's often not an incredible amount of difference, say, between the uh, ICC rules, the International Chamber of Commerce rules, which are, are quite um, broadly adopted and put into agreements in Europe and various parts of Asia and, and the U.S. Um, that set of rules isn't going to look incredibly different from the American Arbitration Association rules, or um, here's a Singapore uh, set of rules, or Hong Kong. Uh, in China, uh, uh, there's the CTAC, the Chinese arbitral uh, body that has their own rules. Um, so you can specify whatever body of rules you want by contract. Um, a lot of it will be determined by the comfort level of uh, the other side of the equation also. Back in the old days, there were always uh, the Soviet Union and there would be uh, uh, certain rules that um, people would feel more comfortable with, too, the Soviets would 
world goes with litigation, which is considered more neutral. Um, it depends a lot more on who the actual arbitrators will be, and the parties have a lot of discretion, and they can decide by agreement that each side can pick an arbitrator, and then those two will say, uh, choose a third. But those actual arbitrators, arbitrators will have a lot more to do with the outcome than the set of rules in any of the cases. And there are going to be some country bonds. People. People from all, all familiar say with the practice of um, civil law, European companies, and they may not quite appreciate the U.S. company's perspective. So there can be some value in balancing out the nationalities and their, uh, their perspectives and their own uh, legal traditions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, exactly, language is issued and the law mm-hmm. could be quite problematic. In other words, you have contracts which may have to be in in local language as well as the language of the department. Um, you know, legal proceedings may have to be in one language, the other language. How do you deal with language issues internationally in a legal sense? It's, uh, we're fortunate as an English-speaking country that um, English is overwhelmingly the language of uh, of contracts in international projects. Really overwhelmingly. I, I, I haven't seen uh, some statistics on percentages, but uh, it, it's just a remarkable phenomenon. Uh, if a Korean party is doing business with a Japanese party, uh, I lived in Korea many years ago, and we, we had the contracts between the Korean side and uh, the Japanese side. They'd be in English, because that's just, uh, unfortunately, the common language, really, between the two countries. Um, and, uh, yeah, it is, it is. And uh, there's, you know, certainly the French, uh, refer uh, French language, and there's some, there are some language requirements in certain kinds of contracts in certain places. Uh, the UN requires that to be done in French. Hmm. And, and we run into things in Quebec, especially in Canada, so it's not something that's just uh, many miles away. Um, so the language issue, um, it isn't nearly as, as problematic as one might think, although um, there are often the case, it's often the case that the contract would also be uh, translated into local language. You'd have to then be concerned about just paying attention to which version governs and is easy enough to say that the, uh, if it's English language as opposed to just takes precedence, even if there's a uh, conflict in, in interpretation. Uh, one should should uh, govern over the other. Mm-hmm. Yet there's other layers of issues too. And say if it's through uh, hazard disputes, um, many of the underlying uh, discussions, and emails, uh, documents might be in another language, and that is a whole other set of issues in the litigation context. I was going to ask, you know, if you take that position mm. and you're working with people who don't speak English and you have native language, mm. you know, there's some issues there, I would say. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, right, right. So I, I, I tend to focus more on the uh, corporate commercial side. And, uh, yeah, I think, and you're right to distinguish the two sides because I think the uh, corporate commercial is probably less of a, of a language issue than there would be on the litigation side and mm-hmm. arbitration. Sure. Okay. Um, now, you talked a little bit about big firms versus small firms. 
you've worked as in-house counsel for some big firms, you're now essentially outside counsel working with all five firms. Um, from your experience, how well equipped are in-house counsels ready to deal with international issues? Um, you know, that's a whole interesting set of issues with in-house counsel. For one, in-house counsel, the role of in-house counsel has changed dramatically in the last number of years, but say 20 years. Um, law firms uh, have had to get used to a whole new set of uh, rules out there with very capable, experienced in-house people calling the shots and running sophisticated transactions and managing the process and doing, rolling up the sleeves and, and doing the work. Um, in the dark ages, there would be more of a, a tendency, if there were in-house lawyers, they would be more um, sort of um, coordinate things between the company and the law firm. And the law firms tended to have much more free reign in, in what they would do with companies and not have these experienced, capable in-house people in between. Mm -hmm. um, looking just on the international side, that it has grown in most major companies, a whole cadre of international experience lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, with, with our practice, which we call international counsel, the name was in the past more commonly used for just that role, the international in-house lawyer, the international counsel. Mm -hmm. and, and we've tried to, to emulate the big companies in-house lawyers for your cross-border work and, and try to behave and act more like them than a full-service law firm. Um, but uh, there's also been all kinds of evolutionary tendencies within the in-house international people, and, and some companies have decided, you know, it's a unified world where you look at things by product line. We don't really look at U.S. versus other countries. If, if all our business lines, say the Motorola's um, handsets, sold everywhere, and our lawyers should be able to serve um, that customer base in that product line, wherever that may be. And, and I think it caused some companies prematurely to say, oh, it's just a generalist lawyer role. We don't really need a separate international team. And we've seen some companies actually shift back and forth. I, I could name, I think many people are aware of Abbott's work, but from the legal side, they used to have a very separate international team of lawyers. And I think then, at least for a time, it became a single team do business wherever. And I think there were some challenges there because some people who were used to only U.S. domestic work suddenly found themselves dealing with issues in other countries that they weren't familiar with and, uh, and, and certainly could come up to speed and, and get to understand the kind of issues that were layered on top. But, um, yeah, in some ways, I think that mirrors a lot of general business responsibility. Mm -hmm. so you have a process product manager who is originally responsible for the United States, they give him global responsibility. He doesn't know how attributes of a product have to be adapted to go to different markets. You know, finance people who have to raise money in different places throughout the world and recognize it's different what you're saying in different places throughout the world. And it sounds like a lot of the legal things you mentioned are mirrored in a lot of the Western business products. Mm -hmm. Now, you are obviously, well, you, you obviously passed the bar here in Illinois, mm -hmm. and I assume 
um, are authorized to practice law in other places as well. But if you're going to be conducting legal transactions in other places throughout the world, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have to work with foreign legal partners. Some big law firms and some even smaller law firms have network partners. Are there advantages and disadvantages? I mean, you inevitably have to work with partners, but are there better ways to choose who your partners are in certain countries throughout the world? Uh, yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're referring to um, with these networks of law firms as a way to show, um, I think, the client base that you have some capabilities in, in other countries without having to have your own offices in those countries. And um, I think it, it came in part as a um, response to the very large law firms that had their own footprints of offices in different parts of the world. I have to admit I'm a little skeptical of the network phenomenon. Um, there are now uh, at least 50 international networks of lawyers. That's probably a, a real understatement, 50 at least semi-prominent ones. Um, if we look around any major city in the U.S. or otherwise, it's hard to find firms that aren't part of the network at this point, that are at least mid-sized to larger law firms. And uh, it, it was supposed to mean that these were hand-picked, carefully selected firms that have a very stringent standard that they have to abide by. I think it tends to be a little stretched, and uh, it can be uh, it kind of substitute for real experience with those countries. And we can we see examples of where a firm may not, say a U.S.-based firm, may not really have any experience in the markets they're dealing with. They happen to have a network partner. And if a few people in the U.S. kind of broken their way through this cross-border transaction, with a few people in that other country who may not have much experience in a cross-border matter either, they're potentially domestic lawyers in that other country. Um, you know, does that lead to disastrous consequences? You know, probably not in most cases. Um, but I also think it's important to have a mix of resources in the important countries you're doing business with. That, that law firm in Korea, say, this would be great for an M&A deal, may be really overkill for some little bit of information you might need to make sure the distribution agreement um, is running a policy anti-competition rules or, or some very, um, very uh, uh, limited questions that one might have. It, it could be obtained through more cost-effective people more efficient people. In some cases, it's not the law firms at all. In some cases, it could be uh, accounting firms. Mm -hmm. I hit India again, but they're, they're often, and this is true in many countries where accounting firms can do some of that corporate setup work. It doesn't necessarily have to be handled through a law office. So if, if everything you're doing in other countries is because you're doing it with a network partner, it, it has its downside. And, uh, and, and law firms will say, well, look, we're not obligated to use that network partner, you can't manage but uh, I think there are financial incentives, reciprocal incentives anyway, that we know that if we send work to that firm, they would maybe be more likely to send it back to us, and so there's a, a whole um, a game play with uh, uh, cross referrals. Of course, I guess my question is, yeah. do the lawyers in the other country have the same vested interest in serving their clients as you do? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Well, I mean, that, that could be the case in fairness. Um, 
uh, whether they're network partners or not network partners. Yeah. Um, and that can, can have its, um, its challenges. Although I run across a few situations where uh, it, it just the state becomes apparent that the local law firm is a good independent local law firm is paying less attention or um, is just not servicing you um, uh, because you're not tied to the hip with your firm. You get some partners and you have a hiring, hiring authority over them. Um, you know, it's a pretty high degree of professionalism from country to country. I think there are many ways too to um, keep people in line. And, and one is, say, over the years, we've had a network of in-house counsel in large U.S. companies, as well as companies around the world, keep an active contact with these in-house counsel who, who can fill in some gas for us, too, in, in terms that we haven't worked with and not hesitant to mention people who have uh, worked with that firm. And there's a lot of eyes that can be on those firms. If they don't service you well, they know that we can get back to other clients of theirs. Uh, other ways to say through bar association activities, we're very active. I'm very active with a group called the Inter-Pacific Bar Association that has a, a very, very wide swath of Asia-Pacific lawyers that are members. And, uh, and there's another layer there of kind of keeping an eye on each other. And word, word does get out if people are not performing as they should be performing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're kind of market mechanisms. One other thing. Uh, you mentioned outsourcing and certainly prominence in software development and my understanding is you even outsourced some of your activities to a firm in India. What are the advantages and disadvantages of outsourcing IT-based professional services? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, for one, I think with that type of outsourcing, which uh, is referred to commonly as legal process outsourcing, mm-hmm. legal process is meant to convey something that is not legal advice. It, mm-hmm. it, it involves legal uh, matters, and IT can be part. I mean, there are there are um, outsourced activities for trademark or patent applications and filling in those applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also uh, it applies even more broadly in the litigation area where, uh, say, for U.S. litigation, you could have English-speaking lawyers in India, the Philippines, and some other places uh, who, who would review these massive amounts of documents and find every place that Mr. Jones has mentioned or, or some more complex um, issues that come up. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a matter of making legal judgments over Mr. Jones's communications and it might have antitrust implications, but it's, it's a, a paralegal, it's, it's really essentially a, a non-lawyer judgment call that's being made. Contract areas, another thing, there's an ability to put together basic agreements, cut and paste, certainly electronically, but cut and paste and put these documents into contract management tools where um, an in-house counsel maybe can call up different agreements in different places and, and find out when they're expiring and find out uh, 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 what the provisions were that governed the history resolution. Um, so um, th- there's been some you know, concern in the press that well, these outsourced lawyers just can't possibly perform at the level of 
the lawyers in, in the best firms in any, any other country. It's not really the, the, the point of it. Good, capable, smart, hardworking people who can do things that don't necessarily have to be done by a U.S. associate, let alone a partner, at a greatly reduced rate. And um, I mean, certainly in their, our ethical standards, and there's a, quite a well-known American Bar Association opinion last year, which which broadly blessed the legal outsourcing phenomenon. Uh, and it, it eased some concerns out there, but with obvious kinds of restrictions, like, for example, the lawyers in the U.S. are very much obligated to be sure that there's confidentiality control and very much obligated to be sure that the employers are supervised or these um, outsourced professionals are supervised adequately. So there are these standards that, that govern the use of outsourced uh, professional services. And, um, you know, if the lawyer just tapped on somebody's judgment call of what might be a, uh, a competition law issue or a tax implication for something that would be essentially malpractice for the U.S. lawyer to do that. The U.S. lawyer is responsible for the legal advice that would come out of that in the same way that they would be as a paralegal work, doing some basic research, maybe preparing a memo, but it, that's not the advice that's going to the client. It's, it's being supervised and blessed by someone who theoretically has uh, has the judgment to, uh, to bless it. Looking over the shoulder of a paralegal here in Chicago, as opposed to over the shoulder of so many people in India, you have to pay more attention in some ways, or at least um, it's a little bit different process. I think so. I think so. Uh, but uh, with so much being done remotely between lawyers among lawyers in this country. Um, it's fewer and farther between you were actually meeting face-to-face with, with clients and, uh, and and even lawyers were working with certainly in other countries where we're never meeting face-to-face. At least more, more, for the most part, when we're in the midst of a physical project. And um, uh, it's become, I think, a lot, uh, just a lot easier to conduct sophisticated business without having to be there face-to-face. I think imagining business before the era of email, in some ways it's kind of unimaginable. It's because, you know, before you had the fax thing. And, you know, how productive is fax if you couldn't cut and paste that? I mean, it's kind of amazing how some of those things have changed business and I'm sure the law in some ways as well. Telex machines. <laughs> <laughs> no, the telex machines. I mean, I was, I'm a, it wasn't a huge number of years ago. I mean, Korea. The first year or so, we still had uh, the telex machine. That uh, the telex operator had to input lengthy memos mm-hmm. into this machine, and it'd be spread out uh, to the other side, and we'd get telex messages. So, uh, that was really uh, quite a breakthrough. Wow, this is a lot easier now. Sure. Now we're really moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Right, well, moving on to just a, a couple kind of personal things, um, I'm just curious. Your opinion of how much American lawyers know about international law. In other words, do you think they know as much as they need to know? And if not, what should American lawyers know about international law that they don't? You know, it's the question. Um, lawyers tend to be a pretty self-confident bunch, and uh, and I think a lot of lawyers who have years of experience in commercial transactions, um, 
whether basic agreements or very sophisticated uh, M&A deals, uh, it, it can be hard to convince a lot of my brethren that there might be something that could be missed uh, that would arise in an international situation. Um, and it's not even so much the, um, the letter of the law, it's certainly not so much the letter of the law. Um, yes, you know, a lot of very good political lawyers could, could find the answer to how you protect security interests in, in China or um, how you um, can make sure that um, this dispute resolution arrangement is going to be enforceable. But how do you get that information? From whom? Um, uh, how do you pull it out cost-effectively from people you're dealing with in another country? And how do you evaluate the practice of that letter of the law? Uh, how it should be applied in judgments on when you're going too far and when you're not going far enough? That, I think, is, is, is a whole set of issues there that's just very hard to substitute um, smart for, for experience. Mm-hmm. And look, lawyers can figure out a lot of this stuff um, uh, after, uh, you know, even in, in a single transaction, they, they, they could, could well figure out many things that they would need to do and look out for. Um, but it's, there's a lot of elements outside of just the raw law. And in a lot of countries, the raw law is, is a lot smaller part of the equation than the rest. Practically, how do we operate? What what should you be relying on in our country? You often can't have the same degree of confidence in, uh, in an agreement that's going to cover everything and be as reliable. Is it? Uh, you have to be prepared to accept less in many jurisdictions. How much less? Is is the uh, is a tough question. Well, that's like part of it is the cultural sensitivity, and for example. Uh, I used to work in Germany yeah. and had an opportunity to, to work with some friends who were looking at buying some real estate. Yeah. And buying real estate is drastically different in Germany. You know, here real estate guys are doing ABC, always be close. But in Germany, you simply can't push as much because people won't accept it. And, you know, there are other permutations and ramifications of that. So it sounds like part of it is simply learning you know, what fits, what works, in a cultural sense, as much as a strict legal sense. Um, I think there's, there's a lot to that. I, I tend to uh, maybe be on the extreme in, uh, and not so much the legal uh, side of advising people, but on how much they should be worrying about those cultural factors in countries they should be doing business with. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to be on the side of don't worry too much about that. You know, Mr. American businessman or woman, Mr. American businesswoman, be yourself. Be true to yourself. Um, you will be seen as a person of integrity. Uh, people will realize that you don't necessarily know, have to know how exactly to give your business card in Japan. Um, you're not going to be ostracized from the group because it hasn't been the perfect way. Uh, in almost, if, if you... Um, if, if you try to do a speed course and, and learn these little things, it's not going to be uh, so much of a secret to your counterparts. They, they know how a native acts, okay? They might, and it's some, some of that certainly appreciate in these gestures and trying to learn the local cult, cult, customs and, and culture. 
and I shouldn't minimize that because a lot of it is really appreciated if, if we try our best to uh, to understand how our counterparts are functioning. But um, uh, be, be sure of yourself and uh, don't be too, too worried about uh, committing cultural profiles. Don't be an American, of course. But one person by the American is another person with a normal way of doing things. Sure. <laughs> and I guess just kind of a flip side of that, I know that you live, work, and practice law outside of the United States. And I'm just wondering how that helps you in working with foreign clients here and Americans looking to do business in other places. You know what? I guess we all kind of think our own experience is really a uh, well, I'll probably exaggerate the importance of it. And uh, to, to me, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, I thought it was an incredibly valuable experience to be working in the kinds of law firms that we have to draw on every day of the week. It happened to be Korea for me. It was a local uh, Korean law firm. Um, but the experience was, I think, uh, translatable much more broadly to than just what happened in Korea. It's what, what happens when you're getting these messages from uh, uh, whether it's another lawyer or, or a company in another country and um, how that's being perceived then by the local office and how do you communicate and pull things out of those local lawyers, what's realistic and what's not. Mm-hmm. When emails are just not going to make it because you send an email to email, it's not going to quite communicate whether it's the urgency or the nuances, and you just have to get on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people don't get on the phone enough. Uh, yes, it can be inconvenient and weird times or something, et cetera, but... It's part of expensive <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, so I, uh, I think we haven't been in the belly of the beast with a lot of these local firms. I, for one, um, I have a lot more respect for a lot of the firms than uh, I think... Uh, some might have. Some tend to think of the local firms as some lesser version of the big sophisticated UK or, or US firm. And and many may not be cranking out the same 500-page documents that would be acceptable in New York or Chicago, but they're cranking out documents that are much more acceptable in their own countries and have a feel for what it takes to get uh, a business relationship off the ground and protected in their own countries. It may not have exactly the same bells and whistles we're used to here, but those bells and whistles can sometimes get in the way, and uh, it just may not be appropriate at all. So you really have to keep listening to what our local counterparts are, are telling us. Again, that sort of that practice and style and uh, the, the, the nuances that are well beyond the letter of the law. And you know something, we could, why don't we just sit down uh, this evening and you could research many areas of the law in many countries, just look, click it off the internet. You know, sometimes, you know, it may not be accurate, but well, hell, you find two or three sources, you'll, you'll quickly come to an understanding of what is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. But what the hell do you do with it? How do you apply it? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's made some business people, and probably a lot of lawyers a little overconfident in, in, in how to conduct themselves in other places just because the information is there. Um, I guess if I were a small technology company CEO, 
have I missed anything? Is there anything else that I should know or think of when I'm thinking about legal issues worldwide? Have you pretty much covered everything, or is there anything else that you think is important that we might have missed? Um, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good call question. I probably should be thinking of several things instantly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I just want to make sure we cover everything. Yeah. So, um, we'll leave it open to you. If there is anything that you think is obvious, that you missed. Um, you, you know, I would... I would say that... Uh, and this is maybe a little self-serving, so I would hesitate to say it, but um, many... Um, Smaller companies, say you're emphasizing that, or, or mid-sized, are used to using a cast of characters that they've grown up with in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And not just looking at the lawyers, but um, the accounting advice, um, uh, the um, financial issues, but but the legal advice is in there. You might have people they turn to for the answers, and they might have a tendency to think that those same people would be the right people when they're doing business elsewhere. And um, I would uh, encourage business people to uh, to reach out beyond that step, to, to pay attention to what else is out there, and, and not do away with, with those people who have advised you in your very successful way. And we've had plenty of very, very good relationships with law firms that um, uh, have great client relationships with some of them we're going to supplement. We're not in the business of taking away their U.S.-based work. Um, and I think uh, find, out, find other ways to partner with the expertise when doing business internationally. At the same time, um, you don't necessarily have to go with uh, the firm with the, most num- the largest number of offices around the world. Saying that we have one of those few of those firms now around Chicago, and they are great places. I, I started off in Baker McKenzie as a summer associate, my first summer after law school, and uh, it was a tremendous experience and a great respect for, uh, for Baker McKenzie. And um, yeah, well, you know, Michigan's been in the, in, in the top. Six, seven, eight, whatever that mix is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fellow Michigan guy, so I got a question. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, one might be a little bit of a stretch, but, um, but uh, no, I mean, it, it's been a it's been great to draw on that the Michigan network too, and, and you know, interesting too how many people have gotten um, SJDs or LLMs, as sort of masters of law degrees mm-hmm. in other countries, and and. Um, uh, the, the alumni network has been, has been interesting just a couple of But so I, I'm not sure I have the, the short answer for those business uh, those things and other places. But, but um, it's very open for other alternatives. You don't necessarily have to spend as much as you might think to get things accomplished. Um, the invitation to things are not going to go as quickly as you think they're going to be more expensive than you think. The legal advice may be a little more expensive than what you're used to in the U.S., but um, but the process will almost inevitably, inevitably be. Those negotiations will stretch on. You won't be able to finish what you set out to finish when you when you went to Thailand and uh, got to go back again. You've got to spend uh, some more management bandwidth. 
Um, so uh, that uh, is really just a couple things that come to mind. Great. Lady Laverty, the International Council, thank you very much. Um, just for your information, listeners, if you'd like to see an edited transcript of this interview, you should be able to find it at intlalliances.com and the address is at Again, thank you, David. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much.